Welcome to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. It's time to make mental health a normal conversation with your host, Shane Kelton. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story with you. I have always hoped that my past experiences can help someone else's future. I'd love to speak and normalize so many common occurrences with grief and mental health, something that I've so badly needed to hear when I was experiencing it myself. That is a quote from Maddie Bennett that was sent through with her story. And I think it's so powerful when I read it, I was like, wow, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) It was nice, and I reason I don't usually read quotes out like that off off people, but I just think it's really important to put it straight out there. Like you're purely doing this out of the fact that you really want to help other people, and that's that's come across right from when we DM'd on Instagram last week. Um, I slid into your DMs, so thanks for the follow, <laughs> and um, we're here today, and. Um, I will, I will read another quote before we get into it today. Um, Huntington's disease is a genetic neurological disease that unfortunately is not known about by many people. Huntington's disease is, in my opinion, Maddie's opinion, one of the worst neurological diseases we have. Huntington's disease is, a, as I mentioned, a genetic disease. And my mother was gene positive from her father. If you have a gene positive parent, you as a child literally have a 50-50 equal chance of being gene positive from birth. There is no cure. There is only symptomatic management. That's all correct because I read it off your information. <laughs> um, and so when I reached out to you, uh, I was pretty honest. I don't know much about the disease. Um, the only reason I know about it, and I said this, is because I've watched Neighbours. Um, yeah. Like, and it is... It's been a prevalent story in the last 18 months on Neighbours where they lost um, one, of, one of the storylines was the four kids lost their mother to Huntington's and the daughter has the gene. Mm. Um, if it wasn't on Neighbours and so people can bag me about Neighbours or Home and Away <laughs> or whatever I watch, but I legitimately wouldn't have known about it without yeah. it. Yeah. Um, did you know that storyline was on there or...? I did. I haven't seen it or or watched it myself. Um, I'm more of a home and away type gal than neighbours. But um, yes, I knew I knew that there was a storyline. I've seen a few snippets. Um, but again, as you said, it's not something that people know about at all. Um, so I think for some people, I've sort of I've heard the comments that um, you know they they've followed the storyline because they are there to figure out what it is Um, and there was obviously a death um, in the storyline so that kind of points out its severity I guess as well Um, but yeah a lot of a lot of people have picked up their phone and and had to do the Dr Google and and figure out what it um, what it actually is and yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with the fact that something as as big as that has um has managed to pick up um a little bit of awareness for the disease as well. So um yeah, we'll take anything, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's important like storylines like that as much as shows people don't technically like them or they think the acting is black, yeah. those storylines I think if you if they're super important and they have mean yeah. like the producers of these shows, you know, if, if someone's clearly been touched by that. Yeah. disease to have got this into a storyline or because as, as I said I didn't know about it and as you are probably aware being on the board um yeah. and Huntington's and having lost your mum to it which we'll touch on 
we'll, we'll get into now is you are more than aware that no one's probably heard of it. Um, yeah. So you you did lose your mum to Huntington's. How long ago was that? Um, so she passed away at the end of 2013. Uh, yeah, eight years, nearly eight years ago now. Yeah. yeah um, you were 19. Yeah. So in the grips of you lost your mum in, in the in you know, what I would say is one of the toughest periods of our lives because we, we leave school, we've got to get a career, we've got to do all this, we've got all these expectations. You were coming to terms with the fact that your mum had passed. And, and when I say that, you knew that was coming mm. um, because the D's, yeah. disease was going to take her at some point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I it was very much a part of my reality that I would lose mum and earlier than... Um, than expected, but her death was still quite sudden. Um, so unfortunately, mum didn't have much quality of life um, towards her the end of her life, um, but we still thought that we had a bit more time left with mum. Um, so unfortunately, yeah, it, it took us by surprise, um, but, yeah, that's that's a part of part of the disease it's just it's so um so savage and so unpredictable it is and like i after we we spoke i went and read as much as i could but i I feel like i'm not going to be able to do it justice through this podcast so i'm hoping and allowing you to take the lead quite often and I will yeah. say like if I ask a stupid question tell me it's a stupid question because that will help others <laughs> and all of that so I'm I'll be asking questions to literally learn about yeah. this as well and I hope people listening will take that out of it as well and yeah. I also want to obviously um you know do my best to pay respect to your mum and everything because um from what I gather from you already is that there's, there was a genuine love and passion for your mum and um, to, to keep her story going. And I think it's something that she'd probably be, I'd say, extremely proud of that you're able to, to do this. So if you could, I'd like to you to go back to when your mum was first diagnosed and, you know, what that meant for the family and what that meant for you and her and, and how that panned out. Yeah. Um, so mum officially found out that she had the disease. Um, she was about 40 years old. Um, so I was around about 12. Um, I just started high school, um, and you know, still pretty young and and naive to the world and reality at that time. Um, so as you sort of touched on before, um, mum was gene positive from her father, um, but mum didn't have a relationship with her father. So I didn't really know him. Um, and up until this day, I didn't know there was such a, um, genetic disease in our family. Um, so I think I sort of mentioned to you, Shane, mum, thought she had the disease from probably about the age of 30. So only a few years after I was born, um, she started to notice a few little things that, um, you know, were, were catching her attention. And I think there was quite a while there that she was genuinely living in denial. Um, and 
you know, I think we'll touch on it later as well. When when you're going through the testing for the disease, um, or when when you're genuinely um, considering the disease being a part of your life, I think any kind of little inkling or you know one little um, one little slip up or you know one little memory slip, something like that, you just instantly you're triggered to think I've got the disease. I'm positive. Um, yeah. And so I think there was, there was quite a few years where mum was possibly in denial that, you know, this might just blow over. Maybe it isn't the disease. Maybe I'm just being, you know, overthinking it all. Um, and then it got to a stage, yeah, when she was 40 where she just thought, nah, look, she was she knew she was positive. Um, she was so sure of it and she just had to go through all of the formalities of formally being diagnosed. Yeah. Um, so mum was a single mum. Um, my mum and dad, they separated when I was quite young, but they still had an amazing relationship um, throughout um, mum's whole life. Um, so dad was still so supportive um, and my dad remarried and my stepmom is and was so supportive through the whole process as well. So, you know, we did it um, as a family, as you said. Um, but, yeah, I, I still remember... The night, it was after school that mum told me, um, she brought me downstairs and, you know, the poor thing just had no idea what to do or say. Yeah. Um, but she had to sit there and tell me that she was positive and then she had to tell me what it was and yeah. what it meant because, you know, being I, I was in year seven and being that age, I couldn't just jump on Google and figure it out. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and yeah, mum had to had to go through all of that, you know, explaining it, what it meant, um, what it meant for her and I as a partnership and, and moving forward and, and what that meant for our life. Um, and my first reaction, which, you know, she told me over and over again throughout the rest of her life, my first reaction was like, well, what is it that's wrong with you? Chocolate mm. was out, you can have mine. Like, let's yeah. get rid of it, we'll move on. You have mine and we'll be good to go. Yep. And she was like, no, Maddie, like that's not how it works. So, um, yeah, that was that was my sort of little naive 12-year-old brain that didn't know how to process it and just I guess I was kind of thinking of it like cancer, like let's chop it out, get rid of it. If you need mine, I'll give you mine, let's move on. Um, so it took um, it took years for me to sort of actually come to terms with um, with what it meant for, for mum and I. Um, and I guess I sort of was able to reflect a little bit then when I knew about the disease um, and saw these little things in mum then that I was like, oh, like that's what it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess a little bit on the background of Huntington's, um, is that, as you said, it's a genetic disease. So it's a, um, a gene mutation that you literally have 50-50% chance um, of getting if one of your parents is positive. So essentially, um, you know, when, when a child's conceived, you've got one parent is obviously got the good gene um, and then one parent has the potential to pass you on a mutated gene and it's just luck of the draw which one you get. 
So I had 50% chance of either getting mum's mutated gene or getting dad's non-mutated gene. Um, And, you know, you're, you're essentially born with the gene, but you're not born with the disease. The disease will manifest later in life. So um, what that mutated gene, um, I guess, presents as is a degenerative disease. So it worsens over time. Um, And essentially it's just a huge impact from an emotional level, a cognitive level, um, and a physical level. So you have a lot of involuntary movement, um, which again, progresses over time. So that, that was probably one of the first things I noticed in mum was, you know, we'd be sitting on the couch and she'd just have like a finger tapping or, or twitching away or, you know, something would twitch. And I was just like, can you stop? Like, what are you doing? Was this after you knew about the diagnosis? Um, no, or, I, or, I think I'd, yeah, I'd always noticed it, but yeah. I just thought it was mum just being, I just yeah. thought it was normal. But, yeah. you know, I just thought she was anxious or something, just sitting there, you know, twitching her finger or whatever it might have been. Um, and yet it wasn't until obviously, um, her diagnosis that I was able to put two and two together and see that that was a pretty clear symptom of the disease. Um, what what were the other symptoms, I guess, you started picking up on, which probably, uh, I guess when you start to see these symptoms, it made it probably feel more real for you. Like what, what were some of those things? And so I'm thinking just to put it out there, like I'm thinking, is it similar to MND, which obviously gets a lot of, um, I guess, publicization now and, and rightly so. And hopefully these other um, neurological and genetic diseases um, get in the future. These, is it similar to that? Is, is that what we're kind of looking for? Yeah, I guess so. Um there's a European journal, um, Charles Sabine, who has the disease himself, um, and he has actually quoted, um, imagine a combination of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia and cancer. So that's how he describes the disease. Um, basically four of the worst diseases in one, really. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, that comes back to that quote um, you said earlier of mine in my email was that it's one of the worst neurological diseases I think that we actually have. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, from a cognitive point of view, you, again, progressively lose um, your cognition and and that becomes significantly impaired. So, you know, you have such a loss of judgment, a loss of clarity, it turns into something like a dementia. Um, so, you know, I, I remember getting to, I remember um, I would have been maybe like year nine or something, I think, and and mum got um, a letter in the mail from Centrelink and, um, you know, being a single mum, she had these, you know, single mum pensions and things. So, this, this letter came and she absolutely lost it. I came home from school and she was in a ball crying and she was beside herself because she'd got this, this letter in the mail from Centrelink. And, you know, she couldn't, she just could not understand what the letter was saying. And all the letter was saying was, you know, it's just a, a reassessment. It was a new time period or something. And just letting yeah. you know, you know, this is the updated 
And she thought, you know, it meant she was she had to owe all this money and pay all this money she didn't have, and she just lost it. Um, and you know, I had to sit there as a as a fifteen year old and and work through the letter and go, like, no, mum, you know, it's 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 not saying that. It's it's just trying to say this. It like don't stress about it. It it literally means nothing. If you didn't open that, nothing would have changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that loss of judgment. Um, and cognition, I mean, is is really, really significantly impacted. Um, and, you know, really towards um, quite late in mum's disease, um, she would she'd do these things like she'd go to the supermarket and washing powder would be on sale and she'd no joke buy 10 mm. packs of washing powder um, because... I don't know why we weren't even in a pandemic then, so it wasn't like we going to run out of it. But it was just this lack of judgment and this cognition was so impaired that she would, yeah, she'd come home with a trolley full of washing powder. Um, and, you know, she went through this other phase of buying these, like, really woolly jackets, like really expensive um, winter like ski jackets almost and she'd she, I would come home from school and every day she'd bought another one and these were like $150 purchases and you know I we physically had to you know I had to get my nana on board and and she had to come and stay with us for a while because we had to somehow stop her from going to the shops and buying these jackets as good as they were um, but you know it just that that complete yeah lack of lack of judgment um and it was just progressively you know that just got so much worse so um again there's little things that I look back on um as a child and and seeing mum you know buy her first first house for just her and I pardon me um was just you know bloody hell that was such an achievement and Mm -hmm. If I could have appreciated that then for what it was, far out, she's just my absolute angel. You know, that just gives me something to, like, such an inspiration. Bloody hell, that would have been hard, raising a child by yourself um, and and still being able to go out and buy a home. Um, Massive. So... Um, yeah, I think, like I say, I want, do want to pause you there, but like, yeah. and this is kind of off the Huntington's track. This is more personal here, but yeah. do you feel, and we were talking before, mm-hmm. before we came on about lots of stuff, but there's, yeah. I wrote something down it was, you said, it's in me to be able to help. And we're talking about the resilience. And yeah. I think what you're, what you're now like, and you have been realizing for the last few years is like, if your mum, could do all of this stuff despite this disease, which was slowly, you know, taking her away, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. And, you know, coming to terms with like where as humans through that age back at 30 to 50, we don't expect to be incapable of doing these things. When our mind starts to go, that's when we get frustrated and we don't expect it to go for longer. Yeah. You know, that inspiration for you is, is that why you, essentially do what you do and like you because you we were talking off air about your job like you love helping people yeah and it's what you do you see you know you can see people after they've had horrific in- accidents and injuries and stuff like which can be quite traumatic but do you feel that this part of your life has really taught you and inspired you to to now do what you're doing now 
Yeah, uh, 100%, 100%. Um, yeah, I definitely feel as though I'm doing what I need to be doing and, and what I was put here on this earth to do. Um, I just feel like I have so much to give and, you know, Again, we were talking before we actually started recording um, and, you know, you sort of said that I was, you know, more mature than um, possibly your average 27-year-old and and that definitely came from, you know, needing to be really independent um, from a really young age and also for, you know, caring for my mum and, and being able to do all of that again from a really young age and, it's just become a part of me, you know. There was never a point where I didn't want to do everything I possibly could for my mum and, um, you know, that's that's now completely instilled in me. I think that was all happening at an age where, um, you know, you're, you're learning about yourself and, and you're developing and um, you're becoming your own person. Um, and... Yeah, I think I think it was just, you know, that's that's how I'm wired. That's that's how I've grown up and and that's what I'll continue to do. Um, you know, I think having been through such a vulnerable experience with mum, I think I can see how much value there is in um, you know, being able to lean on someone that that knows what's going on, being able to lean on people that can help you. Um, you know, Huntington's disease is something that's so unpredictable that, you know, day to day something different can come up, a new challenge, a new symptom, um, and, you know, you, you never know when that's going to happen or you never know how it's going to present. So being able to lean on those around you that um, that can help and provide that advice and, and, you know, support you, I think that's huge and I I only want to be able to do that for someone else as well. Um, you know, I just, I know how much I appreciated that and how much that meant. So for me to be able to give even an ounce of that back um, in my life and, you know, to be able to do that to, to help one person would just be, God, I know how much that meant to me. So if only I could do the same. I won't, we won't, I won't go off in quoting what your patient said to you, but you, you did mention a quote prior that, yeah. you know, a patient is very thankful. So there's already one person you've helped and I'm sure yeah. there's been many others and, you know, we were talking off air about, um, you know, I, we, I lost my mother-in-law, my wife lost her mum and, well, you know, I probably didn't thank any of the doctors or nurses because we were in, a, a, you know, shock and all of that. But, oh, no, actually I did. I remember I thanked a few at, at the at, um, the last place she, she was at. Um, but there's so many, you, you just don't get those thank yous because the person and the individual is, and the families are so caught up in what they're doing. They have to be. So you probably don't get that so often, but when you do hear it and it's clear that you are helping people. So you know, kudos to you. And um, I hope you can use that, the fact that you are helping people, not just the next couple of years of your life, but right through your life with gratitude. And I think I have no doubt you probably will. So, um, uh, there's two parts I wanted to touch on, but I wanted to touch on, um, the death. You said it was unexpected, um, still despite the disease and Mm -hmm. like, so uh, 
I guess I, when I'm thinking about it, the disease, most diseases, you kind of get a, a date, a timeline. And you did mention that um, your mum's life, it, the disease itself doesn't necessarily shorten your lifespan by as much as it did for your mum. It just, yeah. and you're, and I'll quote, and I know you won't mind, but her passing was almost as a relief to many of us surrounding her because of the, effects of the disease was having so what was what was that period of time like why was it so sudden and and unexpected I guess yeah um so mum passed away when she was 47 um and I mean as I said the disease definitely shortens your lifespan but um you know and it's so variable um but you know you're still you're still probably expecting them to be around in their 60s and 70s yeah um so that's i guess sort of the ballpark i had in my head not that i you know necessarily should have had a ballpark or an expectation um as i said every day was just so variable um but 47 was um in my opinion way too early um so it was very sudden um unfortunately mum had a few other sort of medical um concerns at the time um the medication that you take for the management of Huntington's symptoms is is pretty full on um and unfortunately I think probably mum both you know mentally and physically just couldn't cope anymore. Um, so I got a phone call, I think it was maybe one or two o'clock in the morning um, from my nana, so mum's mum, absolutely distraught and telling me that she'd just had a phone call um, from the care facility that mum was in telling us that she'd suddenly passed away. So, um, I mean, as I said, the disease is progressive. So every day she was she was essentially getting worse, but there was never a point that I thought, you know, this could be the end. Um, it, it had never quite gotten to that point. Not that I really knew what the end would look like anyway. Yeah. Um, I think, though, you know, having been around, um, you know, some grandparents that have been old in age and you sort of know when it's like, oh, gosh, we don't know how much longer we've got left. But um, we didn't have that sense at all with mum. So it was very, um, very unexpected from that point of view. But, um, yeah, I think... I think it was just, as I said to you, she she didn't have any quality of life um, towards the end of, of her life there. And um, there was definitely times where I found myself thinking, gosh, I don't know how we're going to do this for another, you know, 10 or so years, whatever it could have been. I don't know how mum's going to do this for another 10 or so years. Um, so as I, as I just touched on, mum was in a permanent care facility for the last... Yep sort of three years of her life um, because she unfortunately got to a stage where um, my family and I, we, we couldn't look after her at home anymore um, and the disease had debilitated her so much that, yeah, we, we, we couldn't have her at home. So um, she had to go into the permanent care facility, which um, was actually sort of tailored to Huntington's um, disease and there are a lot of sort of neurological diseases in the care facility um, but there was a little bit more I guess um, tailored care to to the disease yeah um yeah so 
it, yeah, it was all it was all very sudden. I don't sort of know where I was going with that. Um, no, that's 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 <laughs> fine. Like it's when you talk about the the, the death, and I like I do it as well. And we've done it the last few months. So you, you just get lost. You, you, yeah. It's natural. It's, it's and it's your mind's way of protecting you from reliving it. It's your mind's way of not getting so emotional about it while you're talking about it post and. Um, I guess that's what I, it kind of leads me into the, the next question I was going to ask. And you did, you know, you just spoke briefly about the fact that your mum was, you know, put into care. And prior to that, you were really helping look after her. And you were only a teenage girl who, you know, you're not meant to be looking after a parent. You're meant to be out sneaking out the back door, going to parties and mm-hmm. drinking red bears or whatever 16 year olds drink. Yeah. Um, it might be an 18 year old listening going, oh, red bears. Um, <laughs> That, like, that's essentially, like, you, you you didn't you didn't miss out. That was that your life was your life, and that so we can't really say you missed out. But what where I'm going with this is your life was dramatically changed at a young age through that tough time, and you you've got here. You know, you felt guilty for that, like having relief that she passed away, and you had many emotions and thoughts controlled by like the grieving process so like what was all that like and and I'm, I'm asking that because you're now in a place where you can talk about it and you know we, we have spoken a lot about the illness and we'll touch on the genetic testing and stuff and a bit more on that but I want to know how you managed to get through this grieving process um, because and this isn't just with death as um, I spoke about with Katrina. This is this is all grieving is is everything. You know, pandemic is grieving. Like we are grieving the fact that we're missing out on work, we're missing out on seeing friends, we're missing out. On, so, yeah. What what did you do when you eventually sort of worked your way through all of the chaos that was going on with inside you? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. That that's sort of where I was going before um, with the fact that you know Mum's passing was was really sudden. But you know we didn't know how she was really going to get through. You know the next ten or so years of her life. Um, so to say, you know, and I, I I'm still not okay with saying it, but it's reality and it was almost like a relief when she passed away um she to see her um to see her struggle through those you know those final few years especially was just so hard I mean I don't remember a time where I left seeing mum and I wasn't beside myself um you're so helpless and you know, a part of the disease is is a physical impairment and she had all of this involuntary movement and, you know, she couldn't speak, she couldn't eat. Um, so, you know, she was being fed and, and she couldn't talk, she couldn't control her movement enough to produce words. But you could read it in her eyes. God, yeah. you could read it. You know, she was telling you something. Um, or, you know, you could see the frustration that she can't talk and she just wants to tell you something or you know, respond to, to what you're saying. And she's trying to talk to you with her eyes because you just knew she was, she knew she was still, you know, she still knew what you were saying and, and knew what she wanted to say back. And, you know, you could tell by a cheeky little grin sometimes that she was trying to tell a joke or she was trying to, you know, hang something on you. And, you know, <laughs> she, she still, she didn't lose that side of her. 
um, her personality didn't go at all. So um, I, I sort of mentioned to you, Shane, I feel like I grieved mum twice. Yep. Um, I really felt as though the hardest grieving period was seeing her progressively decline. Um, so, again, I, I kind of touched on this when we've spoken before that um, there was that, that real grieving process of, of losing my mum and my mum of, of what I knew of her. Um, you know, I, I still have so many memories of, of her before the disease really progressively sort of um, came into play and, and I just, I grieved that from so many angles, like, you know, I missed, I missed, um, you know, the free-spirited mum that didn't have to worry about, you know, so many other things that the the disease were impacting in her life. And um, I grieved for her because she was losing her independence every single day. And as you said before, you know, a, a young teenager should never have to look after their a parent or, or someone and, and end up sort of in a carer's role. You know, mum wanted to do that for me. She wanted to do that so bad and she just couldn't. And and you could see her, you could see her accepting that she was losing that. Um, and that was bloody hard to watch. Like that was just so hard to see and and you just felt so, so sorry for her. Um, so, I mean, that looking back on that was such a whirlwind of, of a few years um, and, you know, being able to reflect on it now, I definitely feel like it was, it was a form of grief because um, there was just, you know, so much day-to-day impact um, that, you know, no day was ever, I guess, as a, as a teenager, I just wanted to be normal you know, yeah. we, always, we always talk about normal and, you know, being older now, I don't think there is such a thing as normal. Um, but, you know, I definitely felt very, um, very left of field and, um, you know, we sort of spoke about it before with the um, the neighbours storyline, you know, no one really knows about Huntington. So I never wanted to bring it up. Like I was so, I was so in denial. I was like, you know, I was fine on the surface and no one knew what was going on behind closed doors because if I, I felt as though if I brought up the fact that my mum had this disease, I would then have to delve into what the disease is because no one ever knew about it. No one would ever just be like, oh, yeah, Huntington's, oh, I, I know what that is. Never. Yeah. Um, so it was almost for me like trying to open up and, and saying that mum had this disease. It was like opening up a whole can of worms and that I was going to have to sit down and tell everyone the story and, you know, whilst I was going through it, I, I didn't have the strength to do that. I just had to head down, bum up and just get myself through it. So it's not until, you know, later in life now that I can, I can sit here and, you know, talk for hours if I wanted about it um, again to hopefully make an impact and, and help someone else going through it or, you know, potentially going through it in the future, whatever it might be, even supporting someone that is supporting someone going through it. Um, I think is is massive but yeah I mean obviously then mum passed away um so I was 19 as you said I'd been out of living out of home 
um, in a share house with a couple of girlfriends for um, two years and it was my first year at uni. Um, and I, again, was, was quite independent. I think I was independent, you know, from a young age anyway, but, you know, now I was living in my own house, paying my own rent, you know, all of that kind of stuff and, and mum passed away and, and I just felt this overwhelming responsibility to need to be fine. Um, I mean, I think it's something that, and I'm sure you've probably experienced this yourself recently, Shane, is that seeing other people around you um, grieving the same loss is so hard. And, you know, to see my nana grieving the loss of her daughter was incredibly hard and and you know seeing my auntie grieving the passing of her sister like it was just it was there's no words like you you cannot explain that pain and um you know that experience and so I I felt as though um I was sort of everyone's priority I guess everyone's first priority was that we need to make sure Maddie's okay and that needs to be okay through this we need to support Maddie through this and so I guess I felt this like overwhelming just like no no like I'm fine I can get myself through it like I need to make sure you're all okay yeah yeah and you know I I then from that felt as though if I did display a little bit of um you know emotion or instability that everyone was just going to drop and that was going to be almost like the the tipping point for everyone was if I displayed a little bit of weakness um so I mean I give myself a a pat on the back that I did get through the passing of mum you know uh, pretty um pretty bravely I was I was pretty bloody strong through it all and and I can definitely appreciate that and reflect on that now but um I think it almost came back to bite me a few years later when I actually let all of that emotion and and feeling really come out um, and and show itself. And I had tucked it away. I'd pushed it down. I'd you know I'd completely ignored it because I had to put on this facade and I had to make sure everyone else was okay um, around me because. I mean, even to this day, and and my partner says it to me all the time. Like I've just got this overwhelming um, uh, instinct in me to to never put anyone out. Yep. And you know, I'm I'm a bit of a yes man. Like I just I always want to make sure that I'm never a burden on anyone. And you know, I can never choose what we have for dinner because I don't want to be a burden. <laughs> I want I want you know I want to have what everyone else wants to have for dinner and like I never want to make those executive decisions because I want to make sure everyone else around me is okay and and happy and um and I think that was that was initially how I grieved was just trying to put on this facade so that everyone else around me was going to be okay um at at, at that age like so at that age you, you probably don't want every single you're actually probably doing better than what most would do. Most would probably hit the cans and write themselves off for three or four years, which I'm sure I can't be certain, but I'm sure there was times where you felt like doing that or you did have your weekends where you just, whether it be drinking or just laid in bed for days on end, whatever it might've been. But there was something my therapist said recently and I, cause I said to him and I was with my wife in the session and he said, I said, I don't feel like I can grieve because 
I've got to be there for my wife who's going to lose, who's lost her mum. I'm going to be there for um, my brother-in-law. I've got to be there for, you know, my son who's in, who's just got out of ICU, um, born prematurely. I've got to be there for all these people. And he turned around and he said, why can't you grieve with them? Mm. And I was like, oh, I've never known that was possible. I thought you had to, like, there had to be one strong person. He's like, yeah. Why don't you cry together? Why don't you, you you embrace it together? And I, you wouldn't have known how to do that at all at that age. But I think people that are listening, I hope they take that out of it, that you can actually grieve together. Yeah. Um, and it's actually much more beneficial. Because <laughs> like, it's, it's, you can just sit there and I remember it was a month after Alicia's mom's passing and she was struggling and, Right, right, I wasn't feeding very well and I just grabbed the blanket and I just grabbed her and I said, let's just go. It's, I just said, come with me. And we just sat outside underneath the stars for about 20 minutes before Ryder started getting really cold. Um, yeah. Just And just we just both cried and it was just we didn't say anything, we didn't do anything. And I think, I think that's just a really important part of grieving is allowing yourself to just when it's your time, just if and if people are around, people are around. Like it, yeah. Yeah. it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I, 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 de- I definitely felt what you felt in helping everyone else. And I know Alicia who lost her mum was like, oh, but I feel for a neighbour who's been her best friend for 35 years. And because a neighbour admittedly said her husband wanted to move house many times, but she's like, I'm not moving out because my best friend lives across the road and she <laughs> lost her best friend. So, and Alicia's yeah. like, I feel for her. And I'm like, no, you got to worry about yourself here. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, I think that's such a natural thing is that you, I mean, you're going through all of these emotions that um, chances are you haven't had to experience before. Um, and so, A, you're trying to figure out what they mean and, and B, you're trying to figure out how you're, what your way is of expressing them. Um, and, I mean, I, I, think, I think that was a really hard part of my journey as well that, like, I didn't know what these emotions and feelings meant. Like, I didn't know... I didn't know how I grieved. Like I, I didn't know how to do it. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of my way of going about things, which I don't love sometimes is that I'll store it in a box and I'll throw it away, throw away the key. And essentially it just builds up and gets to a point where that lid off that box just comes flying off. Um, and that's where I got to probably Two, two or three years later after mum passed away was that lid on that box just couldn't stay on anymore. And I went to bed one night and I started Googling psychologists in Geelong. And um, I was back home at the time um, with my family and, and I woke up the next day and I said to my dad, I was like, I need to see someone. Mm. Um, I had just gotten, I didn't know myself anymore. I just felt so low um and broken um and you know as as a young girl you know the the one person you run to is your mum when you feel like that um and I didn't have that and I didn't know where else to find that so um yeah I really I really come unstuck and I mean throughout the whole sort of experience of mum um being diagnosed and um you know, my dad was really conscious of of trying to get some kind of support on board for me. And 
I pushed it away a million and one times. Um, you know, I, I always had that facade that I was fine and that I'll be okay and I'm strong and I can get through this. Um, but I even remember he had a counsellor at our house one day after I got home from school um, because I wouldn't go to a, a counselling session. I wouldn't see anyone. So dad, God bless him, <laughs> you know, he was like, righto, well, <laughs> I'll bring the counsellor to you. <laughs> Um, because, you know, his thoughts, obviously, how could you possibly get through this without, you know, needing some kind of help? Yeah. Um, and that was beyond dad's scope at the time. You know, he helped me more than he would ever know. Um, but he didn't know how else to offer that. So um, he wasn't, he's not the professional in dealing with that kind of thing. And it's a, it's a really valid point because we so often, we go to these people around us and go, I need your help, but they're not equipped to helping how you need help. Like they're there to lend a a shoulder to cry on, to pat you on the back, but sometimes you just need that person who is professionally equipped to do that. And I'm probably speaking to a few people who have reached out to me over the years who refuse to go and get professional help. Like if you, it's that profession, it's like you don't go to a chef to lose weight, like, <laughs> it's just like you don't, they don't have the skill. They may have the skills, but their job is to cook food. Like you, you, you don't mix and mix and match. You don't go to a builder to do the brickwork. Like you, you find the specific person that's going to help you. So yeah. when when you started this process, you know what were the things you learned, and what were the things that you started to do because they can't do it for you. What did you start to do that changed your life? Um, well, the, the course of your life, because it was yeah. it, at that stage, you're at a crossroad. You're at a, I'm going to be just be depressed for years and years and years, or I can get help and help others. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have any sort of specific, you know, strategies or anything that I necessarily put in place, but um, I... I needed to talk like I needed to get it all out there and blatantly honest about the whole thing from from go to woe like you know I just I needed to splurt it all out and I again touching back on the never wanting to burden anyone that was probably something that I never really wanted to put on um on my family because I never wanted that to ever offend anyone or I never wanted that to be like a massive load on them um that as again you said you know they're not qualified for that and and I knew that this was pretty heavy stuff so I didn't necessarily want to put that on on a loved one um so I think the biggest thing that I took out of out of my sort of counseling and psychologist um help early was just like being satisfied and just being okay with not being okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think we've briefly spoken about like they're a charity that speaks so hard to me because that is just like that was my life motto at the time was yeah. that it's okay not to be okay. Um, I think, as I, as I said, I put up this huge facade and just, I just felt this overwhelming pressure to have to be okay. And I don't know why, like it was no one that was specifically making me feel like that. It was, I developed that 
pressure on myself. Um, so I think, yeah, just being okay with not being okay was, was such a big thing for me. And, you know, being able to, um, to appreciate that I was still so young and that I'd been through quite a lot for my age and that, as you said, it was the age to be out, you know, till God knows what hour of the morning drinking red bears and, and all of this kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I sort of, I had to, I had to learn to, um, to accept that. And I had to learn that I was doing a pretty bloody good job of, of dealing with what I had to deal with. And that, you know, I can take my time with, with that process and, you know, if I needed to take time off uni, I could do that. Like mum, mum, mum passed away, bang, like bang in the middle of exams. My first mm. ever lot of like big uni exams. And here I was like stressing about oh, all of that. And it, that was so not important, like <laughs> the scheme of things, but it was just my personality to have to, you know, I had to be okay. I had to keep going. I had to, I had to just keep doing. And um, yeah, I'm, that, eventually sort of led to me coming unstuck a little bit but um yeah I think the more and more that I got to to talk about it and and I guess really understand the um the capacity of what I'd gone through I think you know having had having had dealt with mum's disease for so long it was like you know life's hard and life's a struggle and and that's what life's always going to be like you know you just you go through these struggles and you know life every day is bloody hard and you know it it I'd sort of got to that point where I was like you know life life doesn't always have to be hard and and there's not always going to necessarily be a struggle every day now you know that a little bit touching back with where that relief had come from was that, you know, there wasn't that overwhelming, um, you know, responsibility of, of caring for mum anymore. And, you know, she was in such a better place now and she's at peace and she's, she's resting and, you know, it was time for me to do that a bit too. Um, yeah. That was, that was huge for me. Yeah, uh, very, very, very valid point. Like you're going through something for, you know, most of your teenage, well, half of your life essentially. Yeah. You're yeah. going to be tired. Like you're going to yeah. be tired. And uh, it was, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And I thought of this other quote, which my therapist said, and then abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. Yeah. Like okay. if you're acting normal when something like this happens, that's, not how healthy like that's abnormal like so you've got to allow yourself to as you said you know and you actually kind of inspired me which we'll talk about at the end but to, to say my exams don't matter right now because they don't no. they'll, they'll be there you'll find no. a way to get them done and, Absolutely. Um, and like, I think I've just been going every single day just like gung-ho every day was just was full on and bloody hard yakka and so you know it got to the point where mum had passed away but I couldn't take that step back anymore like I was still just go 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 like every day is hard push through like you've been doing it for this long today's no different and yeah my god I was 
I was putting so much pressure on myself that I didn't need to. Um, and, you know, I, it took for someone else to, to really make me recognise that and to be kind to myself because I would have bloody run myself into the ground if I kept going. Jeez. So it's a scary picture, but I've, I've seen the picture. I've seen the picture on many people that just keep yeah. going and, and yet burn out. And yeah. it's it's ugly. And I think it all comes back to the question, is it healthy and is it sustainable? And, like, it, is it healthy to cry and grieve and stuff? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It, it just absolutely is. Is it sustainable? No, it's not. But in that moment, it's appropriate and yeah. it's not forever. So the other, the other thing I, I thought about when – um, you were talking about then it's because I spoke to someone today and they're really emotional at the moment. I'm like, mate, that's great. You're mm-hmm. a human. Like, and cause I, cause I knew it was, you know, feeling down. I was like, mate, without sadness, you don't have happiness. Like you can't, you can't just remove these emotions that don't feel comfortable because yeah. that's why the other side of life and it was about life is a struggle. Like it is without that struggle, you don't have the rewards and those rewards are so good when, when they come and, yeah. um, so you, you can hear yeah, we, we we'd like to pick which ones we want, but yeah. <laughs> and as you said, you kept bottling stuff and bottling stuff, which is yeah. so common. But yeah. Eventually, that that erupts, and yeah. um, I think yeah. that was really important for me to recognise that I do that too. Like I think until that point, I I did it all subconsciously, and now you know, with something completely unrelated to mum, you know, whether it's work or whether it's whatever, I can recognise what I'm doing now and, you know, I can put actions in place before it gets to that point where, you know, I know I needed help and I was in a pit of depression and anxiety and, um, you know, I I want to be able to do anything to, to stop that from happening again. So that was another really good life-changing um you know, piece of advice that I took out of all of my sort of counselling was recognising my own trends, yeah. um, you know, whether that's in grief or whether that's in stress or whatever it is. But, um, you know, I, you know, you spoke about emotion as well. And I think during that, that early period when mum passed away, I definitely didn't show, um, I didn't show the emotion that I was feeling. And, you know, I reflect back on that now a little bit and think, you know, was I heartless? What was wrong with me? Like my mum just passed away and, and you know, I, I didn't shed half the amount of tears that I was crying inside. Mm. And, um, yeah, just how important that is for for our process. And, I mean, I still go through moments today and, and I'm sure I will for the rest of my life where it's a day that I just miss mum so much. And, you know, if I have to cry about that, then I will. Yeah. Um, because if I, if I let that kind of stuff bottle up, you know, you just never know how that's going to sort of end for you, I guess. And, and you're right. And when you bottle it up, it, it comes out at the, at sometimes the worst time when nothing actually happens. It might be like someone's like, just, mm-hmm. yeah, they've done, they've actually done this thing a hundred times, but cause you've bottled something up. Yeah. You, you just have a go at this person and they're like, what the and, and then you try and explain it to them and they're like, but that's not a reason to take it out on me. And it isn't. So it's like, you've got to just, you got to be constantly just checking in with yourself and saying like, am I, am I, you know, am I doing the work? Am I allowing myself to process what's going on? You know, do I just need to break time and break away? And like, I know 
it's, it's hard for everyone going through the teenage years to the 30 years, the, the fear of missing out. But, you know, sometimes you got to go, is this party actually where I need to be tonight? Because I'm not going well. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Great. And it, it can be with grief or anything, to be honest, is you just go check in and go, is this right for me? Because sometimes you put yourself in those positions because of fear of missing out and you're the one that snaps. And then there's this big re- repercussion of, of pain, um, which makes you feel worse. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, again, given the age that I was when I was going through all of this, I, I did really feel that that fear of missing out and, you know, but at the same time I was in this pit of depression and I couldn't get myself to get up and, and go to this friend's 21st birthday or, you know, I couldn't I couldn't take the time on the weekend to, to go back home and, and, you know, see my mates or, or whatever it was and I really isolated myself for quite a few years um, in silence too yep. and, if I like, I've got the most beautiful friends and, you know, if only I spoke up and said, you know, like I can't come to your 21st because I need to do the right thing for myself at the moment and look after myself and, you know, I'm struggling but I'll be okay. Um, know that I love you and I would be there but I need to put myself first and I just never did. I always had, you know, an excuse or I couldn't get out of work or whatever it was and it was just my way of of blocking it all out and, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I, I didn't know, yeah, I, I, it was sort of subconscious in a way I guess but. Um, well, you're, you're, running, you're running blind down a dark alley really. You didn't, you didn't know what you were doing. You, yeah, like you hadn't been through, and that's why, that's why I believe, and I think you believe, storytelling like this is so powerful. Because if someone listens to this and then they go through it, yeah, they, they're not running completely blind. Like, yeah, yes, the feelings and stuff, but they've got they've got this thing that they've heard and they yep. can try. Or this yep. this, I know. I hope what people get out of this, a lot of what they get out of this is you're actually allowed to feel whatever you feel. You're allowed to do like do whatever in terms of that because actually okay and you're allowed to to grieve and is there anything you want to add on that before we touch on the the testing process and and what that outlook like for you uh let's get let's get yeah so this like this is it's pretty crazy to be honest in in my eyes like you you literally have a 50 50 chance of the gene um 50 percent and yeah that's that's so scary, so scary in the scheme of things because we're like we all know that we're probably something's going to get us eventually. But yeah, you, you've got this at the start, not knowing, but you eventually find out. But you um, didn't know whether you were going to go through the testing process originally. Um, yeah. You at twenty two, you started to go through the process of genetically testing for the disease. Yeah. Um, there's no, there was no real theory behind why the time was right for you. Um, there never really is, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> what is the right time? Yeah. Um, the, I mean, in the end, genetic, uh, the genetic testing involved extensive counselling to ensure you were prepared for whatever the result may be, which is yep. super important. Yep. Um, discussions around the final implications that being positive would mean. Um, and I won't read the next line, but I'll ask the question, you know, if you, so you don't know, you do know what the result is, but before going into knowing what the result is, you have to weigh up all these things, 
like we, we've touched on a couple of them, but what are some of the other things you need to sort of weigh up really heavily before you find out? Um, I mean, I guess that's, it's so variable for everyone. Um, I mean, I had obviously firsthand been watching my mum struggle with this disease and essentially, you know, that's what, what makes a part of it so hard and, you know, you can potentially see your future right in front of you. Um, you know, everything that I was helping mum with and I was thinking, you know, not that I would change it for the world. My God, I would do it a million times over if I, mm. if I could. But I was thinking I I can't put my child through this. Like I don't, you know, from a young age, from from being a young teenager, I was thinking, you know, I don't know if I'll ever have kids because, and, you know, from, from like a, a 13, 14-year-old, I didn't really know um you know what the process was around around having kids with this kind of disease but I thought my god you know I I don't know I couldn't do that to a partner I couldn't do that to a child of mine um there was a lot you know I always thought about my potential you know my future partner and and who I would end up with and I can't put them through this like how how can I marry someone and and put them through this. It was just, it was such a bizarre concept to try and get your head around. And I remember my first, my first sort of real boyfriend, I guess, in like year nine. And um, I remember dad saying to me like, Maddie, you have to tell him about your mum. And I was like, well, no, like, no, like I just, I was like, why? Yeah, and, and Dad's like, because you know, I, we were in year nine. We're never going to be together forever. But like Dad, <laughs> Dad's insight and motivation there. Um, he was like, you have to tell him because if if you end up with this disease, then this could be a part of his life. So, you know, you can't be so selfish about the fact that you want to hide away that this disease is a part of your family and is a part of your life. But you know, if you're going to be serious with this boy then you've you've you he deserves that respect of, of knowing about this disease and um you know that was that bloody hit home because I I hadn't thought of it I mean you know whether you say that selfish or not but I hadn't really thought of it from someone else's point of view in my life it was always from my point of view and me having kids and me being with a partner yeah. it was never oh shit this could be a like this could be a, a massive, this is a massive commitment for someone who wants to be with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so early on thinking about testing, I mean, you're legally able to get tested from the age of 18. I think you can get tested before then, but you need to do that, you know, with a legal guardian or, or a parent. So um, it was nothing mum and dad ever forced upon me or, you know, they just wanted me to know that I had the option at any age and, you know, from 18, it was, it was go for your life when, when you're ready. Um, so I guess, I guess the two biggest things that I had been considering in the lead up to making the decision to get tested was, you know, partners and relationships and, and then also, you know, the future of, of being a mum and, and having children. So, um, I think, 
you know, as you can you can think about that until you go blue in the face. Um, you know, I don't think there's ever going to be something that influences your decision from that point of view um, because reality is you could be worrying about this for no reason because you may not have the disease, um, but you could, you know, make these decisions then once you know that you're positive with this person that you love or, you know, without yeah. someone um, but I, I think I kind of got to the point where I was so sick of thinking about it all from two different points of view, whether I would have been positive or negative. And I was like, you know what, I just need to find out. Yeah. Um, so when I started the process, as you mentioned, it was months of counselling um, to ensure that I was going to be ready for whatever fate was going to be. Um, and, you know, they, they also want to make sure that you're making the decision yourself and, and for the right reasons and, yep. you know, you're not being influenced by someone or something else and, you know, that, that it's truly been your decision um, to, to start the process. And from that, um, you know, things came up like I mentioned to you about not being eligible for a mortgage if I was positive with the disease because, you know, a mortgage can be 30 years yeah. and with this genetic disease, your life is shortened and, you know, you've got no financial security in being able to show that you can fulfil a 30-year loan. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there was considerations then about like, well, do I wait a few years and, and buy a house and get a mortgage and then if I get tested and get positive, at least I've got it and it's yeah. loaded? And I'm like, but is that cheating the system? <laughs> I don't know what what the um, legalities are around that. And, and, you know, then there was options being brought to me about, um, I mean, I guess you call it like an IVF sort of treatment with, um, with getting pregnant is that you can, oh God knows how, but technology is incredible these days. Um, you can essentially have your eggs frozen and, and they can find which ones are gene negative and gene positive. Yeah. And then you go through the IVF journey with only the gene oh, yeah. genes yeah. Uh, so that you can't pass it on to your children. Um, but, you know, if you're positive and you have children, whether they're positive or negative, you know, you, you were potentially still the one that um, they were going to be caring for. So, yeah. oh, it was, it was a massive process and, I guess it, it just got to a point where, as I said before, I felt like I needed to know the result to be able to make these decisions. I felt like there was no point in stressing about it before I had the the result hard and fast in front of me because it could have all been, you know, a lot of stress for, for no reason. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think they were important to consider, um, but I think I was trying to find an answer before I'd even got the result. So, um, yeah, as I said, it, it sort of just got to a point where um, I felt like I was ready to do it and I just knew that I was ready to do it. I remember ringing Dad and, and saying, I'm going to get tested. How do I do it? What do we do? And he sort of said to me, I was waiting for this phone call, like I knew you'd just flick a switch and you'd want to do it. Yeah. Um, I think I think, I think that's a, that's essentially how it happens with everyone. You don't you don't you can think about this as you said, to blue in the face, 
but then you won't kind of will do it and then you won't do it and you jump in and out and then one day you'll just do it. So it's yeah. take that pressure off because when yeah. you when you'll know, you'll know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, from then, I mean, as I said, the the process is quite lengthy and my results were ready. Um, I think they were ready in July and I didn't actually go in and get my result until November. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a few things, you know, dad and, and my stepmom Jodie had sort of said, you know, cause I was, I was at uni still and they were like, do you just wait until you get through the end of this semester and, you know, do your exams and then, and then we'll do it together. Or, you know, do you want to do it right smack bang in the middle of the year? And, um, yeah, it was, it was something that throughout those months, I, as I mentioned before with mum, you know, she knew that she was positive before she'd had the test, but I started to drive myself crazy with overanalyzing everything I did. Like if I got to the supermarket and I forgot something, I was like, I'm positive. Yeah. Or I remember I bawled my eyes out one day because I was doing uni at home. I just had lectures and stuff online and I'd made myself a cup of tea and I went to sit it on the bench and completely missed. And that, like, if you knew me, I just do that kind of shit. And you'd be like, oh, I'm hopeless like that. So I went to put this cup of tea on the bench and I missed and the cup of tea, like, fell on the ground and I sent a photo of the mess to my dad and I was like, I've got to have the gene. And yeah. like, Maddie, <laughs> You spilled a cup of tea, but that you do that anyway. Um, so it got it got really tough in that you know everything I did. If I shook in the middle of the night and woke myself up, I was like, I've got the disease. Yeah. Um, if I was sitting on the couch and you know your foot can flinch or your finger can flinch or something, and I was like, I've got the disease, and I did get myself through. Um, until the end of the semester because, you know, I just felt like I needed to concentrate on one thing at a time. And, yeah, um, yeah we we got to a stage where, yeah, it was the 11th of November, which is 11-11, um, yep. which I also find, you know, quite a connection with. I'm not sure if how you feel about that kind of side of things. But, um, you know, I just, yeah, I, I went and, went ahead with it in November. Yeah. Uh, uni was done. I literally think it was like a day or two after I'd finished my last exam. Um, and, yeah, that was the day that I was told I was gene negative. What was that feeling like? Oh, mate, you, <laughs> I can't. I can't because there's no possible words in the world. Um, Does it, is it in that moment you just... It feels like you, you. I mean, there's a. I can't remember the exact quote, but it, it feels like your life starts. Like yeah, you yeah. Have, you have you have two lives, two lives, and the second one's when you realise you only have one. Like, and it's just like I can actually do all these things I've written myself off to be able to do. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. I'd written off so much of just being a normal twenty-year-old. Um, or even just a normal adult, like I should stop saying normal, but um, yeah, I just, I had, I'd stopped myself from getting excited about things. Um, 
I mean, kids, having kids was never a consideration of mine and I always used to blame that on my two brothers. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm 10 years older than them and so I very much remember, um, sorry, these are my stepbrothers, so they're mm-hmm. my stepmom and my dad's kids, but I remember them being young too yeah. vividly and I always blamed it on them that I didn't want kids because I remember how much of a nightmare they were, but um, that was just my coping mechanism to into the fact that I, I felt like I couldn't get excited about starting yeah. family and being a mum and, you know, that was never a reality for me. So, um, yeah, I I went in. So all of the testing was done through Royal Children's in Melbourne and, um, you know, I had the option. I had a really, really good relationship at this point with my genetic counsellor. She was like, oh, she was an angel. She was just you know, we spoke about before when people were in the right job and, and God, she's yeah. in the right job. Yep. Um, but, you know, I had the option of going in by myself or I had the option of going in with my family or whoever I wanted and I said, no, nah, I want to do it by myself. Um, and so my dad and, and my stepmom and partner at the time um, were in the waiting room and I went in and... Um, you know, sat there and we had to go through a little bit of a process again about like, are you sure that you want to receive this? You don't have to, um, you know, you've really got to make sure that this is what you want to do. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she, um, she handed me an envelope and said, open it. And I was like, no, I can't do that. You've got to, you have to do that. Yeah. Like, no, I'm not opening it. You have to open the envelope. And she said there'll be a number in the middle of it um, and if it's, I can't quite remember now, I think she said if it's above 30, then you're negative and if it's below 30, then you're positive. And I was like, oh, where's the number going to be? <laughs> oh, like it was just, anyway, so I opened it and my number was like 100 and something and I just, just, dropped like just bought yeah. my out went numb like shaky numb everything sweaty crying like all the words and um I just I hugged my genetic counselor for ages and just let it you know just had, had a few moments um yeah. by myself and, and with her and just what a bloody process to have gotten to the end of um and yeah, and came out, and I I couldn't even speak the words. Like I was crying, which to my family they were like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, is this bad? Is this bad? Yeah, is Tell this us, bad? What the hell? And my stepmom like came running. I just remember she was the first one I saw. She came running and she stood in front of me, and I just was like, I don't have it. Mm. And my dad dropped to the floor and just bawled his eyes out. And my stepmom just held me, and we just screamed and cried and you know everything you know talk about emotion that was a room full of emotion that had just been built up for so long um from not only just me but obviously my loved ones as well and oh well it's a journey and I say this say this knowing my parents want wanted grandkids it's like your dad's probably always thought my my daughter might not be able to have kids she might not get to have this feeling that I've I've experienced having kids and so he probably goes oh now she had like whether you want to or not is another story but like in that moment he's like she has options my daughter has options and that's that's all you want 
from your kids is for them to be able to live yeah. a, a quality of life. And, you know, we, we go back to your mum and I'm sure if you told her you, you can live to 42 but your and your quality of life is going to be 100% the whole way or you're going to live to 47 and your quality of life is going to get worse over 17 years, she's probably going to take 42. Like that's yeah. the reality of yeah. What what it's like. So it's that, and that's essentially why everyone's so happy is because they're like, we just we're just glad she's her, deter- her deterioration is not going to affect her and the people around us again. Mm. Yeah, right. yeah, and I think you're spot on. Like that that was a huge thing for my dad was that you know that yeah I can just do what what I want now in a way and and I don't have to have that consideration and I've got no doubt in the world that he would have supported me through any decision Mm. I wanted to make but I do think it hurt a little bit for him to to hear me sort of being quite blunt as a teenager saying that I was never going to have kids yeah um you know so and like 27 now and you know I can't wait to be a mum and and I'll do it when the time's right but um you know, I, I always get told by so many f- close family that, you know, mum was just, she was born to be a mum and she did, she was busting to have me and, you know, she was, it was her whole life. And I know having obviously lived through it, that I was her everything. Um, and, you know, that, I just want that so much now myself um, and, and there was nothing, that was something I hadn't allowed myself to feel for years and it's only probably come on in the last sort of couple of years that I really just had that sort of maternal instinct yeah. um, but it was never, never, never something that I, I ever had. But, um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah, there you go. And it is, like, I, I think it's amazing how... Like we, we close ourselves off to so many opportunities in life because of we're scared of this or this and, and that and that. When and then if you went once you got the decision, it was just like your know, your world opened up again. And yeah. like hopefully people listening can take something out of that in terms of just still be open to it all. Like yeah. don't rule it out until it needs to be ruled out. Like be open to it because. Yeah. And we know anything's possible if we don't know. Like if we don't know something, we don't know yeah. something. That's that's the way it is. And yeah. we live we live a lot in fear. We we yeah. all do. Um, I was I was so cynical about it. Like reflecting on it now, I was so cynical about it. And you know, I don't. I it probably reflects where I was in life at that time. And and the emotions and and the struggles that I was going through. It was easier just to be. You know really blunt and and um I guess I I was trying to protect myself a little bit as well from you know that kind of heartache not trying to bank my money on you know having a family and being a mum because what if it can't be my reality um but you know even being gene positive doesn't mean that that can't be your reality um it's it's a really personal choice I mean there's technology and and um there's things out there now that can it can very much be a part of your reality so you know there's there's families out there that are happy as larry and you know married with kids and you know it's just it doesn't mean that it can't be your reality it was just the way that i was facing it and and dealing with it and 
not that I regret anything because, you know, everything that I felt and did and said was a part of my process mm. and I think has contributed to who I am and how I deal with, deal with things today. But um, that would definitely be my advice if I was, you know, talking to someone else in in those shoes would be yeah. that, you know, it's um, it's probably more damaging being so cynical about it, to be honest. I I definitely didn't need to be like that. <laughs> yeah, as you said, you didn't you didn't know any different, and that's why you're sharing your story now is to hopefully you know to that 13 year old or 14 year old who might have the parent who is going through this, or you know the 22 year old who's weighing up the decision, or yeah. um, it, it, you're keeping their minds open to all of it and not having to force themselves into making these hard decisions or being 100% on something which isn't really what they want it's just because they're scared and I think you brought up a really good point with moving forward as well and why this decision is completely individual up to the family involved is we don't know in 10-15 years they might find something that can help Huntington's and Mm. we just don't know so you've got to walk into it with your eyes open and go look I I do want to have a kid and I'm, I'm going to be a part of giving back to the Huntington's board and society and communities to try and get something that's going to allow us to live for 15 years longer or with, you know, the same amount of length of life but a better quality. And I think essentially that's that's what we're all fighting for within whatever field we're fighting for. We're fighting, you know, cancer. That's the same thing. That's exactly what they're fighting for. They're fighting for better quality and longer life. It's, yeah. it's the reality and um, mm. I, I honestly – I'm in complete admiration of you sharing your story. I've been listening. I'm so glad to have learned so much about the illness, but yourself and your journey and you've side note, you've inspired me to do a couple of things, which I'll talk about off air. Um, but it's, you know, thank you. Um, and I'm sure the people that are listening, thank you as well. And I will say if there's anything you want to add, you add it now and I'll finish with a final quote before we, we hang up the we stop the recording yeah um i guess the last thing that i want to add is that you know i i really wanted to be able to share you know what i've been through um and and this story and this journey because i mean you quoted it a little bit earlier as well but it's something hearing this from someone that's done it all um lived the real life of it I think would have really helped me when when I was going through it um I felt really alienated going through it because as we said no one really knows about the disease but you know it doesn't necessarily have to be Huntington specific I think you know there's a lot to take out of out of that story from you know so many different perspectives and it can have nothing to do with Huntington's but um, you know, I just want to be a bit of that voice so that, you know, someone else can hear it and, and feel as though they're not the only ones going through it um, and having these thoughts and considerations. Um, and, you know, as you said before, I just want what I have been through um, to not just be a part of my past. I want it to help someone else's future. So I really hope that, you know, they're words that can can settle someone's mind and and you know just make this the smallest smallest of impact. 
you stole what I was going to say. So I will say, <laughs> so I'll say thank you for joining me again. And thanks to listeners who have listened. Um, please share this, please subscribe, please like, review. Um, if you need to contact myself or Maddie, hit me up. If you've got questions, if you need more information, um, just hit us up. But yeah, thank you, Maddie, and thank you, listeners. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for listening to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. If anything in this podcast has brought up difficult feelings, please call Lifeline on 13-1144. For any further information or if you want to bring your story to life, contact Shane at shane at vitalityfit.com.au. That's V-I-T-A-L-I-T-Y-F-I-T-T dot com dot A-U.